You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that has narrowly avoided being crushed to death by a pile of unread books on the nightstand. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And after 50 some odd episodes, I'm running out of funny literature adjacent openers with which to start the show. So if any of you want to share your literary wit, tweet a suggestion at Pod or email us at onolitclass at gmail.com. If it's funny enough and not blatantly stolen from Tumblr or something... We'll use it and give you a shout out. Just like William Butler Yeats says, never the face. <laughs> so anyway, today, just, just brushing right over that one, today <laughs> is an Ono oh Lick Class first. You know why, RJ? Why is it a first? <laughs> who's the first? Well, who's on first? <laughs> no, no, What? Who? what's on second? Who, who's on, wait, no, what's on? Wow. Fuck. All who's right, on um, first? <laughs> this is a, a special episode because this is our first patreon chosen episode the 50 dollar tier on our patreon is the the perk is that you you get to pick a thing within the bounds of reason and we do the thing there are no bounds of reason <laughs> there are there are some bounds of reason someone should donate 50 dollars so we can finally do art of the deal don't do that please please don't, please don't do that please make megan summarize this book jesus christ so thank you to Anne, who is the first person to take us up on that Thanks, Anne. Anne chose two short stories, Bloodchild by celebrated sci-fi author Octavia Butler and Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin, whom I believe invented some kind of game involving various thrones. Musical chairs, maybe. Who knows? RJ, do you have any familiarity with an either of the any at all? Yeah. Like what? I, I don't know. Octavia Butler's a writer, does sci-fi. Come yeah, across their yes, stuff along the way. And George R. R. Martin, he's really into TNA. <laughs> well, at, like least the, at least the show is. I don't. I have not read a Game of Thrones or a George R. R. Martin anything. He could have put his foot down. Oh, to be like, stop with all of the boobs and, and such. And yeah. the rape. Um, see, I just know that secondhand. So <laughs> you're assuming HBO created all this whole cloth. <laughs> No, I'm saying I have no idea. I can't claim any of it because I've never read it. I'm here to tell you it's all bunnies and butterflies. Oh, yeah. HBO took it over. <laughs> and now you got what you got. I, and I've read precisely one Octavia Butler short story before this in, in a grad school sci-fi literature class. Have you read any, Butler? I'm sure. Okay. So you're coming at this knowing just as little as I do. It wasn't very memorable, I guess. I know the name. Good I job. I might have read, like... <laughs> Non-fiction stuff, or if she wrote, she did write a lot of letter, essays. Yeah, yeah. that's I've, I haven't read them, but that, she that, did. That, that's what hangs in the back of my mind. So I don't know if I've read her fiction. Okay, non-fiction work. I'm very confident I have read. Well, this is uncharted territory, so I, I guess let's uh, let's start by telling people about Octavia Butler, RJ. This isn't very uncharted territory. What's uncharted about it? Because this ain't classic lit. It's classic to me. No, it's not. You haven't read it. It's classic. It's from the 80s. Classic. <laughs> Only 80 kids get it. 
only 80 kids <laughs> in the entire oh no only out of the entire world only 80 kids get it 80s kids tell us about octavia butler rj octavia estelle butler born june 22nd 1947 died february 24th 2006 octobutt was born in pasadena okay. california octobutt that feels not great <laughs> If anything, it would be Octobut. 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 She's not Octavia Butler. Look, <laughs> does it really make a difference? I guess not. All right, Octobut was born in Pasadena, <laughs> California, land of sunshine and big dreams. Her mom was, of course, Octavia Margaret Guy. Her dad was Lawrence James Butler. Mom was a housemaid. Dad was a shoeshine man. I will say, like... Octavia is a pretty cool name, so in this case, I feel like we can kind of let it slide wanting to pass it on. Like, that's a dope name. Since mom was also Octavia, our Octavia was generally referred to as Junior or Junie. So to be technical, she was Octabut Junior, or the original OG OBJ. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Suck on that Odell Beckham Junior, sports baller. He calls himself OBJ. He doesn't recognize OBJ was generally raised by her mother and grandmother as her dad died when she was only seven. The shoeshine business is some serious turf war shit. Have you not seen the shoeshine business like in the airport and crap? They got their little boxes. Keep you squatting on other people's property. Okay. The problem with being raised by grandma butts. Well, (laughs) yeah. She was a strict little Baptist firecracker. OB would write about the tough upbringing later in life. One thing that did work out in Obi's favor is that Pasadena by the 1950s was actually rather integrated. Her mother was employed by affluent white families as a maid, and Obi would usually go with her mom to help out, or otherwise just spend time with mom. Obi was known for being horribly shy as a child. She never wanted to speak to anyone. Making matters worse, Obi suffered from dyslexia, so whatever confidence her awkward self could muster was drained by that. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, dyslexia fucking sucks. (laughs) So not only did she not have any friends at school, but her academic performance left a lot to be desired as well. This led OB to appraise herself as, quote, ugly and stupid, clumsy, and socially hopeless. Aww. She also remarked how she was frequently bullied. This brings us to this week's edition of Confidence Building with RJ, brought to you by RJ Brand Steel. What? Do you want steel resolve inside and outside the bedroom? RJ Brand Steel, got your back. Wait, why do you have to specify? (laughs) Now, I know a lot of people struggle with confidence. Specifically, like OB, I know a lot of people suffer with public speaking and speaking to strangers in general. You don't speak to strangers. You make me do it for you. I speak to plenty of strangers. Yeah, but when we have to, like, ask someone something, you make me do it. So don't come on, don't come on to our show and just fucking tell lies. Well, I'm here to tell all of you, there is no need. People are idiots. And are you going to let idiots judge you? Hell, are you going to be so scared of idiots that you self-regulate your own thoughts and your own mouth out of fear as to what others might possibly think about you during one one millionth of their insignificant, meaningless life on this speck of a rock we call Earth? Fuck, as I tell my own students, and anyone who will listen, even when you're speaking to someone, you might, at most, have, like, half their attention. While you're talking, they are thinking about if they have something caught in their teeth, if they have B.O., or about that hot Oscar Wilde-themed BDSM video they watched last night. Step up. Be loud. Be proud. 
Be as hard and as stiff as R.J. Brand Steel. If you are, your partners will thank you. Uh, this has been Confidence Building with R.J. I'm still confused as how much of this may or may not be dick-based. Now, back to Pasadena, California, and the tale of the OG OBJ. Despite her dyslexia, she actually spent a lot of her time reading at the local library and writing in her, quote, big pink notebook. At first, she says she was really into fairy tales and very specifically horse stories. Some people are horse girls, man. That's just how it is. So there you have it. Octavia Butler, our first brony. OB graduated from My Little Pony and moved on to science fiction. At 10 years old, she begged her mother for what every 10-year-old with a thing for horses begs their mom for. You know, just want to go back and point out, bronies are, are dudes. Like, the, the brony is specifically the term for the gross men who like My Little Pony. So she's not a brony. She was a 10-year-old horse girl, that's a thing. She asked for a typewriter, okay? Oh, thank God. Writing in notebooks was now passe. She was a happy little writer until her aunt had one of those aunt moments and reportedly said to Obi, quote, Oh, honey, Negroes can't be writers. Oh, jeez. I mean, we get a lot of the things where the family members say, like, a lot of shit like that, where it's like, you can't be right. That's, that's real bad. Mm-hmm. That's just like, ugh. And that's another Oh No Liquas family member crushing a dream. Yep. Hashtag dream crushers. It's a running theme here. Not to be dissuaded, Obi started sending pieces off to science fiction magazines. After graduating high school, not only did Obi not go to NYC, like most, but I believe she's the first author we've had who attended a community college, specifically Pasadena City College. Look at that. Hashtag PCC for life. As a freshman, she won $15 in a school-based writing contest. It's also important to realize she started college in 1965 and graduated in 1968, which means she was in school during the height of the 60s political unrest and resistance in the U.S. While in college, Obi was exposed to and met members who were part of the Black Panther movement. She actually had a very visceral reaction to part of their message, writing against it in Kindred. Specifically, she felt that people should not be belittled or criticized for not outwardly and vocally fighting against racist patriarchy, but rather felt those working silently in the margins, like her mother did, were warriors in their own rights as well. Upon graduating from college, instead of taking a secretarial position, which was what most in her orbit wanted her to do as a stable career path, Obi worked temporary odd jobs that would allow her to write in the middle of the night, like 2 or 3 a.m., Despite science fiction being dominated by white males at the time, Obi, a woman of color, persevered. Hell yeah. Through writing workshops, contests, outreach programs, and mentorship opportunities, Obi made important connections by working her ass off, which is okay. She had seven more to spare. One of her biggest connections and confidants was Samuel Delaney, a man who has won four Nebula Awards and two Hugo Awards. I've actually, Samuel Delaney I've read more of. We read a bunch of him in in the sci-fi class. Not a bad person to have on your side. She hit her stride with Speech Sounds in 1984, which won the Hugo Award for a short story. And that's the only one I've read. (laughs) Obi was 37. Not being complacent, she won the Hugo Award for the novelette Bloodchild the very next year. She said of herself during her career, quote, Who am I? I'm a 47-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects someday to be an 80-year-old writer. I'm also comfortably asocial, a hermit, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, 
certainty, and drive. Well, now I just love her and need to go read more of her essays and stuff. Interesting fact about Obi, she never drove. It may have been due to her dyslexia, or maybe she just didn't like doing it. Instead, she was known to almost exclusively ride the bus and discuss her bus journeys with whoever she came across on a given day. I'm surprised she didn't just roller skate down the road with Ray Bradbury. <laughs> I don't know if she knew how to skate. Well, because he also was, he never learned, he never got his driver's license and, or rode in a plane. <laughs> yeah, but he met people on his skates. <laughs> she was asocial. She didn't do anything with anybody. Case in point, she never married. She never had any kids. Really, it seems her life was dedicated to her writing. Obi struggled with her health, especially towards the end of her life. High blood pressure was her biggest bugaboo. Because of the medication she took for that, she became depressed and struggled with writer's block. That sucks. On February 24, 2006, at the age of 58, she went for a walk outside of her home and suffered a fatal accident brought on by a stroke. She left almost all of her writing to the Huntington Library. Obi was highly celebrated, highly awarded, and highly respected for her work by the time she died. She is still celebrated and honored for breaking into a field that looked very different before her. Aw, she didn't get to be an 80-year-old writer, though. Maybe in heaven. I'm told all Octobuts go to heaven. <laughs> all eight of them. All, all eight. Or seven if she, that's all she had left. <laughs> the end. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get into Bloodchild. Bloodchild. It's very evocative. Very evocative. Yes. So, Bloodchild is a short no, story. Sucking on other people. No. Sucking their nope. blood. RJ didn't read either of these, so this is going to be fun. Um, Drinking their viscera. Bloodchild is a short story. Like I said, it was originally published in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine in 1984, where it won all the things, including the Nebula Award, uh, the Hugo Award, the Locus Award, and the Science Fiction Chronicle Award. All for Best Novelette, which I thought was weird, at least in the anthology I read the story in. It's ten pages long. So it seems like sci-fi doesn't understand what a short story is or the bar for what constitutes a novelette is, is way lower than I thought. So I did Google it and apparently the science fiction and fantasy writers of America define short story length in the Nebula Awards for science fiction specifically as having a word count of fewer than 7,500 words. That would be a 300 page book? No, 7,500. 7, oh, 7,500. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be 30 pages. Yeah. Yeah. Except that Bloodchild is 7,064 words, so who knows what the fuck the Nebula Awards are on about. I know it's stupid, but it just bothered me. Like, what the fuck is a novelette? Just call it a goddamn short story. Oh, maybe she sold it separately. Well, because it was originally published in a magazine, and then yeah. it was republished as the title piece to the collection Bloodchild and Other Stories in 1995. So prior to this, like I said, the, the only Octavia Butler short story I read was Speech Sounds, which is about a future where there's like a virus that affects different parts of the brain in different people, killing their ability to like speak or comprehend language or read depending. And so people have to rely on like body language and stuff. It was really good because I still remember it after only reading it the one time, like five years ago, you know, it's a very good example of like vivid world building in an incredibly small space. Bloodchild also does this to horrifying effect. Part of me doesn't even want to summarize this story because it's just, just go read it. Just go read it without knowing anything about it at all like I did and get your bumps thoroughly goosed because this story is fucked, dude. And, and I mean that in a good way. Like it's a good kind of like, oh no, why? Like how we talked about the movie Under the Skin in our Beowulf episode. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's got that same, like, I can appreciate that this is really well done on a technical level, 
but I also would very much like to not repeat this experience ever again. Please hold my hand. I'm very vulnerable right now. Hold my hand. Hold it. There Another go. movie in where ScarJo <laughs> plays a race that she's not. <laughs> it's true, though. So uh, if you do choose to listen before reading, just, you know, be prepared for, for spoilers per usual. So let's start with some context. According to Butler, part of why she wrote Bloodchild was as a means of dealing with a fear of parasites, specifically botflies. Now, if you're like me and were blessedly ignorant to what exactly a botfly was and how it was different from a regular old fly, let me save you a mildly unpleasant Google. Did you know what a botfly was? It's one that goes in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're big. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They put their eggs inside mammals and then the larvae hatch and grow inside their skin and or guts. <laughs> Kinky. Uh, oh, and, you know, in case you're wondering, yes, while they don't all do it, there is a species of botfly that specifically targets humans for their hosts. And to make things worse, they don't even have the courtesy to reveal their true and horrible nature by way of their appearances, like wasps do. They look like bumblebees. They fucking trick you. Oh, I mean, if you get stung by a bumblebee, that should be an issue also. Yeah, but the bumblebee ain't laying eggs in my fucking body. There are babies in it. Also, don't botflies also, instead of laying eggs in you, don't they bite you also sometimes? P- potentially? Look, I didn't look that heavily into it because it's upsetting and I did not like it. Yeah, I think like on top of the egg laying in you, they could also just bite you. Uh, I hate it. It's a big bite too. Yeah, I'm burdened with this terrible knowledge now. So apparently Butler was, quite reasonably I think, all things considered, super freaked out by botflies and their whole steez. So her solution to this was to work through this fear by writing a story where botflies are A. Bigger than a person B. The dominant species C. Intelligent with sophisticated and complex emotions and D. Implant their eggs in humans to get them egg pregnant. So to be fair, that last bit is not immediately apparent right off the bat. Uh, The story is being told to us by a boy named Gan. It's not quite obvious. Gan. G-A-N. It's not quite obvious how old Gan is. Maybe like early teens. Anyway, Gan lives with his family, namely a mom, older brother, and younger sisters. Oh, and also Tagatoy. Tagatoy. Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi, the aforementioned giant bug thing with many bendy limbs that have a disconcerting habit of, like, encompassing and embracing Gan and the others and giving me the goddamn willies. So I was just hanging out in the living room with with Tagatoy. T-G-A-T-O-I. With a little sci-fi apostrophe between the T and the G like you do. Drinking out of some sterile eggs that I guess c- come from her or other Tlick, which is the name of Takatoy's species. The sterile eggs have this like numbing quaalude kind of effect that's uh, apparently really nice and prolongs human lifespan and, and vigor. So the eggs aren't just like a nice gesture, they're a way to keep humans happy and healthy longer which makes them better hosts for Tlick Young, which is why Gan's mom doesn't want any. And this bums out Tagatoy, who seems to genuinely want to make Gan's mom happy. Come on, man. It's working out for everybody. Just take take an egg. Don't be a fucking buzzkill. Take an egg. When somebody offers you some food, you take it. It's impolite if you don't. We learn that a group of humans escaped to the Tlick's plant to walk the... Me. Don't be so racist towards these botflies. To the Tlix planet some time ago, and through means that I don't particularly want to think about, realized that humans were super good at incubating Tlix babies. 
And while this used to be a bit more of a uh, predatory situation where they were like basically sold as slaves, bred as animals, and separated from their families and junk, Tagatoy is like a high-level bug politician who made this place called the Preserve, where humans can live together with their families and are kind of kept as like status symbols in a way um and also a necessity so like if they want to keep making slick babies it's in their best interest to keep the humans reasonably comfortable and happy but this was a long time ago and gan has never known any other kind of life he's he's known takatoy all his life and he understands in an abstract way that he's like hers and will at some point be her host and shit but this isn't weird to him. Like, he was literally promised to her as a baby, and it's pretty much viewed all around as, like, a privilege. Because, you know, especially since she's such a politically important giant bug creature. So there's this whole thing also where, where Tagatoy specifically wanted a baby because she wanted to, like, secure a strong bond right away and be there while it grew up, whereas most Tlick want adolescence so that they can get right to the business of, of making babies or... I guess more accurately putting babies in them. Like, it's less a sexual thing and more like keeping an easy bake oven as a pet. But uh, we'll get there. You gotta plug it in? You gotta... We'll get there. But anyway, Gan's pretty chill about his life situation, except that very evening they hear a commotion outside and they find a dude passed out alone in the street. He is super duper pregnant and according to an ID he's wearing, he's named Brand Lomas and belongs to... Tegotgifte. Which just sounds like Butler just punched a keyboard. Just like, Tagatifkate. That's, that's her name. Anyway, this, this hargle-bargle bug person is nowhere in sight. Which is really bad, because if she's not here to deal with, like, her pregnant human, he will most likely die, taking all those sweet baby maggots down with him. Tragic. Tragique. You think it's gross now? We're not even close. I don't think it's gross you yet. You don't think it's gross yet? Yeah, nature. You don't think getting eggs implanted in you? Nature finds a way. Yeah, sure does. Ta- Takatoy sends Gan's brother, Kui, to try to find Lomas's Tlick. It's a lot of words. And in the meantime, Takatoy's gonna try her best to save Lomas, and more importantly, the buns in his proverbial oven. At first, she warns Gan to go somewhere else, saying that since Lomas isn't her human, this is not going to be a pleasant experience for anyone involved, including someone watching. But Gan's all like, no, I can help! And she's like, alright dude, if you say so. And instructs him to go out and kill the nearest available farm animal and bring it over. And Gan's never killed anything before, and, and he's really freaked out about the idea, so he grabs an illicit gun that they're not supposed to have, because guns have been outlawed for what I imagine are fairly obvious reasons, but it, it seems weird that they have, like, not one, but according to Gan's several hidden guns, considering how they all seem to be pretty big fans of, of the Tlick. But whatever, he grabs the gun, shoots an animal, brings it back to Tagatoy. It's called, like, an Acti or something. It's just like a little, like, sheep motherfucker. Uh, so Gan tells us that he has an idea, at least, of how the birthing works, and that Tagatoy has, like, told him about the birds and the parasitic botflies and shown him diagrams, but he's never seen one in person, and suddenly he's pretty nervous. Then the fun part starts. Tagatoy slits the animal open, then strips Lomas naked, all with her many terrible limbs, and she stings him, which is supposed to be a sedative, but it doesn't work very well, because she's not his bonded bug beast. And while she feels bad about this... Time is of the essence, and so he is fully conscious when she fucking slits him open from fucking stem to stern, revealing very much unegged larvae that, had they been inside him any longer, 
would have started eating him. Tagatoy proceeds to pull a whole bunch of these squirming little fuckers out of Lomas and puts them into the animal that Gan killed, and she's pretty chill about it, like, ooh, a boy one, that's good. Just pull that one right out here. Whereas Gan is about to puke, and I am right there with him. Like, the descriptions in the, the scene are just really intense. Finally, the operation is completed, and Lomas has managed to make it through alive. They stitch him back up. His click shows up, and apparently she was sick, and that's why she wasn't around to, like, do the thing herself. And now that everything is done, Gan goes outside and throws up, and his brother Kui shows back up uh, to be like, Hey, looks like you saw some shit there. But he's not empathetic, though. He's a real dick about it. Because he's glad that he wasn't chosen like Gan, so he doesn't have to be pregnant at any point, and he gets to have all those good, sterile stoner eggs. Just, you know, cuz. Then he tells Gan that he once was out in the hills, and he saw a click with her human, and he needed to give birth, like, ASAP. But there wasn't any other animals to, like, stick the grubs in, and, and there was no one around to help, so it didn't open the human up, and instead let the baby bugs eat him alive. This happens. Gotta do what you gotta do. Uh, thanks, Quee. I'm, I'm sure your brother really appreciated that fun and interesting anecdote that you only bothered to tell him right now in this moment. If you're pregnant with the things, you should keep a pet goat, pet pig, pet cow. That would make sense. Also, Quee could have just not told him that story on right after this very traumatic experience. Why do it later? He's already troubled. Well, maybe don't. Maybe don't tell him. He he tries to follow it up with like, but yeah, no, like Tagatoy really likes you. I'm sure she'll be careful. And then Gan punches Kui in the face. So like, yeah, that's that's merited. That's earned. He goes back home and gets the gun back out. And he thinks about how his dad did that whole human host thing three times and like seemed to be perfectly happy with it. Like his dad's dead at this point, but his dad was also like really old when he got with Gan's mom because the doing this like stretched out his lifespan. Tagatoy finds him and understands that he's, you know, kind of traumatized and thinks at first that he's going to shoot her, but actually he puts the barrel under his own chin and he says he doesn't want to be a host animal. And he tearfully asks Tagatoy like what he is to her and what humans are to like the Tlick, really. And Tagatoy insists that Gan and his family aren't animals to them and that that's why the Tlick like join their families together and points out that they were dying as a species before the humans came. Humans who were fleeing from, you know, their own kind who wanted to enslave them and so each needs the other to survive. And it all feels very heartfelt and and sincere, at least until Gan is like still kind of hesitant and Tagatoy manipulates him by saying like, oh, I guess I'll just do it to your sister instead. And uses that as, like, leverage to get him to relent and to let Tagatoy put her egg babies in him. And then she reveals that she'd actually planned to do it that very night. And Gan gets angry that she would have just gone and impregnated his sister. But also, like, in a weird, jealous way. Like, he's like, oh, so you'll just stick your ovipositor and whoever happens to be around. I see how it is. Not special at all. Nah, you bug slut. So then they do the thing, and I know I said earlier that it really wasn't, like, sexual, but it definitely reads like a sex scene, and, like, the intimacy, and the physicality they of it. They go in the butt? Uh, no, I don't think they go on the butt. Well, uh, where are they going? There's it's not a unclear. Of, not a lot of orifices It's to unclear. Choose from. She's got an ovipositor. It goes wherever she fucking wants. I don't know. And Tagatoy promises to always take care of Gan and never, like, put him in a position like the guy was in earlier, and he believes her. The end. Oh, he's so good at get got. Ew, 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 ew. Gross. 
It's an extremely effective story. It's, it's a world that, you know, feels fully realized. It is alien and weird and extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, very xenomorph. Very xenomorph. Raises a whole host of uh, questions and implications, many of which I don't want an answer to. And, and it does it all in basically ten pages, which, like, damn, that's pretty fucking impressive. So, you know, there are obvious parallels that you can draw here with, like, symbiotic relationships and power dynamics and stuff, as well as, like, slavery, although Butler was extremely vocal that this story was not meant to be a uh, commentary on slavery. Who cares what she thinks? The death of the author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's still like a visceral fucking story. And, and even after reading it like days ago, it's still all up in my brain space. And the mark of a good story, you know, be it fiction, nonfiction, book, movie or whatever, is that it sticks with you long after you've seen or read it. And I'm still dealing with Bloodchild. <laughs> there are no adaptations of it, which on the one hand feels sort of criminal because like, even just within this very small space, there's so much extremely tangible stuff to work with in terms of expanding it into, like, a movie or a TV show or something. It just hints at so much history and, like, social hierarchy and, and weird shit that could be developed. So it's kind of a bummer that, like, no one has tried. When did she write this? Uh, 1984. Yeah. So it ain't happened by then. Yeah. On the other hand... I really, really don't need to see Tagatoy or any of the other Tlick and all their gigantic insectoid, multi-legged, potentially segmented, bemandibled glory. <sighs> Getting the fucking heebie-jeebies picturing it. I'm thinking of Gregor Samsa uh, laying some eggs and some family members. Uh, Dancing uh, peeps uh, Aw, think... maybe Gregor would have been appreciated on the Tlick planet. <laughs> you think him and Tagatoy... Would have been a good couple. I think they might have, yeah, because I think she would have really cared about him. Like, she clearly would have been the dominant personality in that relationship, but I think Gregor needs something like that. Mm. So, why don't you tell us the thing about George R.R. R. Martin? Yeah, just transitioning on. Because, interestingly, these two stories are, are very similar in bug content, and just like, well, I'm going to get into like kind of more analysis at the end. So for now, that that's kind of it for Bloodchild. So unless there's something you want to throw in, I don't know if it, did this awaken something in you? I like bothflies. They're just doing what bothflies do. I mean, everything's just doing what it does, but some people's things that they do are fucking horrible. This is a lesson to humans. Stick to earth. Nature is so upsetting. At least to talk to them. I mean, I think it's worse when you get one of them intestinal worms that just live in you and eat all your food. That's so impersonal. Uh, yeah. There's no bond there. No, I mean, if you're going to leech <laughs> off of me, do it face to face. Fair. You know what? Fair. Hey there, everybody. We're going to keep things short and sweet today because if you can't tell by the sound of it, I'm sick again. Yes, again. Thank you uh, again to Anne for pledging to the Substitute T-shirt tier on Patreon. And I hope you're enjoying this episode because you did this to yourself. The show is brought to you by, by Anne and the rest of our radical and totally tubular patrons. Including our newest ones, Maddie and Kate. Yep, I know. Another Kate. An unending wall of Kates. This Kate specifically is the host of the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast incidentally is also this week's pod pal not not because she she pledged although obviously i appreciate it thank you kate but because it's a really good show the ignorance was bliss podcast is quote true crime adjacent and is uh kind of meant to to answer the question of why would someone do that or how could that happen 
And uh, sometimes the answer isn't a thing you want to know, but is still interesting to hear. So I feel about a lot of true crime podcasts. Um, dealing in fields of mental health and criminal justice by Kate, who has worked in those kind of fields. And like, she's just like very authentic and real and also really funny and just great to talk to. I was recently on an episode where I talked about being diagnosed with bipolar disorder and ADHD and other stuff like as an adult and how that all sort of thing goes and it's just really interesting and it's it's cool to listen to so check it out everybody has a story and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues even when we think they are we wonder how did this happen or what is that like or what happens next are you sure you really want to know this is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWB Podcast. All right, so George, Raymond, Richard, Martin, born September 20th, 1948, and will die at some point in the future. Eventually. Unless the secret formula for immortality is created before he expires. Colloquially, George R.R. R. Martin is known as G.R.R.M. or Gurm. <laughs> Gurm. I think it's a shame his initials aren't T and A as a team. So that's why most people are into G-O-T, L-M-A-O, J-K. It's because of the D-R-A-G-O-N-S is. That just shaved like several months off of my life. To me, George can only be referred to as one thing. And that's Mr. Sexy. He exudes it. Yeah. Have you seen his little hat? I, 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 I have seen a picture of George R. R. Martin. Have you seen his little hat? I have seen his little hat. I, for one, am completely comfortable with objectifying his mind, body, and words. Oh, Mr. Sexy. Yeah, you put that male gaze on him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> See, I, I prefer name-wise. Like how people say about J.R.R. Tolkien, they call him Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkin. So I like George, George, Rartin, Martin. (laughs) So about that, this is a much better nickname than the American Tolkien, which was hoisted upon him. It's a big band. Foisted? Hoisted. No, foisted. Foisted? Yeah. Hoisted. No, you hoist something up, you foist something upon someone. We're actually going to talk about that moniker in a bit. Okay. So Mr. Sexy was... Jesus. (laughs) That's his name. Yeah, you know, I just call, call him Germ. I call him Germ. <laughs> but he was actually born Germ with one R. He was G-R-M. Oh. He added the extra R, Richard, when he was 13, as that is his confirmation name, confirming he is indeed a sexy dick. <laughs> God damn it. Mr. Sexy, a.k.a. Germ, was born in Bayonne, New Jersey. He was born to Raymond Collins Martin, a longshoreman, and Margaret Brady Martin, wife to a longshoreman. (laughs) Do you know what a longshoreman is? Not a fucking clue. They do something near docks, presumably? So just so you know and everyone else knows, just in case they didn't, longshoremen are the same as stevedores. You know, season two of The Wire, (sighs) the dock workers, Sabaka, Ziggy, (laughs) and most importantly, the dock. Everyone loved a duck. A, pro- people probably don't remember the wire too much. Oh, wait, and Megan, they, wait, wait. Oh. Oh. Do you hear that? Quack, quack, quack. Jesus Christ. Brow, brow. What the 
fuck was that? <laughs> that means it must be time for another Exotic Inn with RJ, the show in which we explore exotic pet ownership. Wait, those were supposed to be animal sounds? Holy shit. Ducks, raccoons, platypuses. Wait, okay, wait, no, I have to stop you, because I, I have to trace this, that you were like, hey, do you know what a longshoreman is? And I was like, no, not really, and you just somehow managed to use that to bring up a show that's years old, to specifically point out a season that everyone agrees is the weakest season of that show, because of a bit with a duck, so you could do this thing. I need to go lie down, Jesus Christ. So ducks, raccoons, platypuses, sure, they might seem to be cute and cuddly. And yeah, you might think they'd make good pets. But no, hell no, it's a bad idea from top to bottom. Are ducks and raccoons considered exotic? Depends where you live. <laughs> They're not domesticated. They might bite you, poison you, or kill your children. No, there are only two kinds of pets you should have. You know, it's funny because I know you have no idea what the story we're about to get into is, is about, but this is shockingly germane. Domesticated animals or gimps. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't need to explain the benefits of human pet ownership, though. Some segment of our audience might balk at the idea of owning a furry cat or dog, but I implore you to give it a try. I was skeptical, and even I wormed enough to let our furry guy sleep on the bed. You're talking about the cat. You're not talking about a gimp or someone in a fursuit. No kink shaming. You're talking about a cat. <laughs> yeah, the human pet hasn't even earned that right yet. Oh my god. And that wraps up another exotic in with RJ. That was horrible. Tell me about fucking George R. R. Martin, please. You gotta say his name. Germ. No. Dog, d sexy man? I don't fucking... It wasn't that hard. So back to Mr. Sexy. Excuse me. Who knows a thing or two about power play nope oh yeah he does don't worry so germ was the first of three children he has two younger sisters mr sexy is half irish and claims french english welsh and german roots surprisingly no westeros <laughs> additionally he learned on the tv show finding your roots that he is a quarter ashkenazi jew this surprised him are we ever, does that mean we can like claim him now I don't know, a quarter Jewish? Questionable. Yeah, I don't I don't know at what point we could just be like, he counts now, George R. R. Martin is one of us. <laughs> I mean, if you look at him, he got the beard. He kind of looks like an old... Um, like a rabbinical sort of fella. Uh, uh, he looks like an old fat singing man. Fat singing man? Yeah, that Yenthal, what was his name? Tevya? Yeah. He doesn't look like Tevya. Yeah, an old fatter Tevya. <laughs> the Martin family was pretty poor when sexy was still just a little sexy. He grew up in a home that had belonged to his great-grandmother. And once the family left that, they moved into federally-owned housing projects near the docks. In Atlantic City, this was not. Mm. As a child, Germ's world covered about five square blocks. Basically the area from his house to school and then back again. This made him feel, understandably, claustrophobic. It led him to become a big reader as he wanted to see and experience everything beyond those five square blocks. Aww. The natural progression was that he began to write about mythical kingdoms. One that he recalled later in life starred his pet turtles, which apparently died a lot for non-obvious reasons. So in the tales he penned, he had them die due to, quote, sinister plots enacted by other eviler turtles. Oh, 
it's kind of sad, but really cute and sort of dark. Throughout his school age years, he continued to read, gravitating towards comic books. Gurm was specifically a Marvel man, specifically speaking high of Stan Lee and his creations later in life. He said of Lee, quote, Maybe Stan Lee is the greatest literary influence on me, even more than Shakespeare or Tolkien. At some point, Marvel ran an event in which they published some fan letters. This would not work in 2019. (laughs) One of the letters they decided to publish was penned by our man. Comic readers actually wrote back to him directly, and thus he began making contacts through, specifically, the pages of the Fantastic Four. Huh, that's neat. Yeah, maybe not the best comic book, but you can only do so much. (laughs) Yeah, well. At the age of 17 in 1965, Gurm won the Alley Award for Best Fanfic. He knew what the other comic fans wanted. Mm. At 22, he graduated with a journalism degree from Northwestern University. Go Wildcats. He followed that up with a master's degree a year later. This was all happening during a time that the Vietnam War and its associated draft were ongoing. Gurm was no fan of war, and thus he filed for and obtained a conscientious objector status. In the mid-1970s, Gurm was trying to make ends meet through writing and playing chess. Well, neither was particularly lucrative. (laughs) And so he began to make connections in the teaching world, hoping to land a gig until he finally did get a post at Clark College. However, this only lasted a few years as a close friend of his died, forcing Gurm to reevaluate his life. The friend was a teacher and Gurm felt that guy never really got to live, that he was kind of working his life away. Oh, wow. And so Gurm decided he wanted to write full time and making steady money be damned at least for the foreseeable future. It's very close to home right now. (laughs) So he moved from the upper Midwest to the American Southwest to Santa Fe, New Mexico, in part being tired of all the winters that were still always coming. Ironic. (laughs) The thing that really saved his hide in 1977 was that something big, something out of his control, happened that year. Something that shot the whole science fiction genre into orbit. Any guesses? 1977. Uh, I mean, you said shot into orbit, so it, I guess it's a space thing. A man who nowadays is almost as big as George R. R. Martin. Oh, oh, Star Wars. Star Wars! <laughs> Whereas his stories barely made anything before, now that Star Wars awoke something in the American unconscious, he was able to sell a single idea for what used to take three years to earn as a college instructor. Nice. This was actually the second time a craze started by someone else really helped Gurm. You see, earlier in the 1970s, his chess playing didn't really help him much. But in 1972, Bobby Fischer happened, and chess had a renaissance in this country, and Gurm made bank setting up and running chess tournaments for all the little kids that suddenly wanted to be a chess master too. So he had good timing and took advantage of it. Sometimes it might just be being at the right place at the right time. It was for Gurm. So one thing of note that Megan might like to know is that Gurm considers Sand Kings one of his best pieces of science fiction horror hybrid. <laughs> oh, does, oh, does he now? <laughs> yes. He struggled with making money with his writing, but the connections he made paid off. One connection led him to becoming a writer on the rebooted CBS revival of The Twilight Zone. Paid That's also interesting given something we're going to talk about. Being a Hollywood writer paid much better than what he was doing, so even after that series ended, he stayed on the left coast and caught on as a writer for Max Headroom. Oh yeah, and for those of you who are of a certain age, you may remember the Beauty and the Beast TV show. (laughs) 
The one with Ron Perlman? Yep. <laughs> he wrote 14 of the 16 episodes. Wow. He's always reminded me of a bell. <laughs> Eventually, he became disenchanted with that whole TV game and went back to writing novels. It was the mid-90s, and he struck gold with what we all know. Steampunk softcore porn, with some death and dragons mixed in for good measure. A Song of Ice and Fire, and a Game of Thrones. Gurm is still working on finishing that series as HBO finishes the TV show based on the books. Among criticisms of the books is that, well, they could be kind of dreary. I do like his pushback on that specific criticism. I quote him, If this absence of joy is going to trouble you, or you're looking for something more affirming, then you should probably seek elsewhere. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I feel like that's pretty straightforward. If you're looking for something that's happy, go read something that's happy. Uh, I feel like that's a, a reasonable thing to, to say. He adds, quote, When my characters are in danger, I want you to be afraid to turn the page. So you need to show, right from the beginning, that you're playing for keeps. For good measure, he shits all over Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, basically saying it's good versus evil is way too simple, uninspired, and rather insipid in how it uses chivalry. He refers to Lord of the Rings as, quote, Disneyland Middle Ages. Okay, well, I don't want to, like, defend Lord of the Rings, per se, because I, I never made, because I get bored. But, I mean, you got to take that in its context of the whole, like, simplified good versus evil is, you know, he was writing in the wake of, like... The fucking world wars and shit, you know? Different times. <laughs> it's very thinly veiled, yes. World War One stuff. He was a soldier, so yeah, like, it, it, I think that's kind of a, a mean thing to leverage that doesn't acknowledge the context in which it was written. I'm being the mean one here. I mean, he does point out that Lord of the Rings, it's kind of its own thing. He does say it's one of his biggest influences ever. Okay. I'm just, you're, I'm you're ramping it up to mean. 11. You're just being mean. What did Joke and Rolk and Rolk and Tolkien ever do to you? As mentioned earlier, he is sometimes referred to as, quote, the American Tolkien by literary critics. LOL. He probably loves that. Oh, yeah. In fact, by others, he's credited for creating the anti-Tolkien fantasy genre. So there you have it. He's both sides of the argument at the same time. That's like any critic who, like, reads a, a thing or sees a piece of media that employs magic in any, like, aspect and also has a child and goes, oh, it's like a Harry Potter. It's like... Can you try harder? <laughs> now, one thing Gurm has never been accused of, it's being a fast worker. <laughs> In fact, fans lament at how long it takes him to get his work to print, especially nowadays. Not that Gurm needs any defense. However, Mr. Amanda Palmer, some dude named Neil Gaiman, said of the <laughs> criticisms, quote, George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. <laughs> well put. <laughs> Mr. Amanda Palmer. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy Amanda gave her husband the time and space and break from his husband duties for him to express himself. <laughs> Later in life, Mr. Sexy has refused to die and continues to live to this day. One day, though, he will die. <laughs> like all of us, except for me. What? Gurm is a big Grateful Dead fan, and fellow Deadhead and ESPN reporter John Stugatz Wiener has reported <laughs> that... Gurm confided in him at a recent Dead concert that he has finished writing, and the story is amazing. Mr. Wiener claims he was told the ending and also agreed, it's amazing. The end. 
for all the Stugats Army fans out there listening to this show, of which there are... Hashtag Stugats Army. Maybe one. You should throw that uh, hashtag out there. They love Stugats, and Stugats loves George R.R. R. Martin, and George R.R. R. Martin loves the dead, and the Stugats Army loves the dead. You should tell them all of them are mentioned on this episode. There you go. It's a lot of things. All right, let's let's uh, let's get into Sand Kings. I give you enough information? Yeah, I get, you did. Yeah. Yeah. You want to go back to the animals? No. Make, oh, oh. No, no. Oh, Jesus Christ. So Sand Kings is another short story that is apparently actually a novelette. And I'm starting to fucking hate this term because, like, we have short story and we have novel. And then we got novella in between there when it's just kind of like a long thing, but not long enough. Like, we don't need another fucking fiddly category. Don't size shame. I'm a size queen. I think novelettes just seems so dumb. Sand Kings is definitely a lot longer than Bloodchild, so I'll give it that. Originally published in the sci-fi magazine Omni in 1979, in 1980 it won a Nebula, Hugo, and Locus Award for Best Novelette, and was nominated for the Balrog Award in Short Fiction. To date, Sand Kings is the only story Martin has written to win both a Hugo and a Nebula. Sand Kings was republished in 1981, also as the title story to a collection. The, the inspiration for this story, as, as will become apparent, is of a, a college friend of his at Northwestern's who would feed goldfish to a tank of piranhas that he owned. What else are you going to feed to piranhas? <laughs> I don't know. I have no fucking idea. Fish food, I guess. Yeah, the goldfish. That's the food. So, like we just said, I've never read anything by him at all. I, I guess I'd at least read the one Octavia Butler story. I went into this one with no preconceived notions and absolutely no idea what to expect. And what I got was a bunch of bullshit. He considers this his best. Yeah, well, we're gonna gonna talk about that. So I even messaged Anne to let her know, like, hey, so I'm gonna take this second story apart, okay? And she was like, yeah, no, go for it. So here we go. You gotta watch out. This guy's still alive, and he has a very active follow base. Follow base. And he got the Wrath of Stugat's army is gonna come for you. I got no problem with the man, and I don't... I've never read Game of Thrones, so I'm not, like, disparaging it. I'm disparaging a short story he wrote in 1979. So the story takes place in a sci-fi space future on a planet called Balder, where a wealthy dickwad named Simon Cress is looking for a fun new pet. That's Balderdash. <laughs> How do we know Simon is a dickwad? Because Martin very quickly goes out of his way to tell us through such subtle details, like Simon likes to collect weird monster pets, but also doesn't give a shit about them, so they tend to die when he goes on business trips. Also, he has something called a shambler that he periodically feeds kittens to. So, like, a couple paragraphs into this 20-some-odd-page story, we already know our protagonist is one of those rich people who's, like, so bored by having lots of money that he needs to amuse himself by kitten murdering, and that he mistreats his pets, so, like, I already know how this is going to end. He's gonna get murdered by whatever pet he buys next. Like, I may not have read this before, but I've experienced plenty of media, sci-fi and otherwise, about wealthy dickwads who mistreat an animal and get their karmic comeuppance by being brutally murdered by said animal. This is a sexy animal. We'll get there. And okay, maybe this wasn't such a big sci-fi trope in 79. Maybe people are copying Martin, but also like, hmm, how do I alert the reader that Simon is the worst? I know, let's make him a kitten murderer. This is just like the first of many instances where, where Martin will be peering out from the story at the reader going like, isn't that fucked up? Are you freaked out by how fucked up this is? To which I would say, well, it's no horrifying live maggot birth cesarean section, but sure, fine. Anyway, Simon heads to his usual stores and is pretty disappointed at the selections. 
Then he finds a new store, one he doesn't ever remember seeing around the sci-fi future strip mall, as though it just mysteriously appeared there. Ooh. Were they selling little furry guys that he said don't feed them after midnight? <laughs> Basically, it's a, the store is called a Woe and Shade, and inside is a weird, fog-drenched sci-fi future equivalent of PetSmart. Uh, Simon meets Woe, who Woe Woe. That's a good. The name, name of the store is Woe and Shade. Yeah, the, 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 the proprietors are Woe and Shade. Oh, that was a Woe W O E. No W O. Oh, I was thinking W H O A. Whoa. Whoa, guy, you want this dude? <laughs> so, I'm gonna get you so fucking high. Simon meets Woe, who, after he tells her he's looking for a pet that's, quote, entertaining, says she has just the pet for his discerning weirdo tastes, and brings it to a large terrarium filled with what she calls sand kings. Small insect-looking creatures. Yep, that's right, because this episode's a bug double whammy. Lucky for me. Yay, love it. It's the best. I fucking hate bugs. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry to all the bug listeners out there. I have a phobia. You've been in the future, Meg. You know, podcaster forever. Who knows who's going to listen to this and what species they may be. Uh, so they're, they're also uh, apparently extremely intelligent. These bug fingers are called mobiles, and they have a symbiotic relationship with their equivalent of like a queen bee that's called a maw. M-A-W, that lives in a castle that they build for it. Maws are not buggy, but instead just wet, semi-psychic lumps of meat with mouths. Neat. They're a maw. Yeah. Yeah, works perfectly. It's true, it's descriptive of the thing. So Will tells Simon that maws will eat basically whatever table scraps, and then they feed the mobiles that build their little fortifications, and that if he buys a bunch of different colored mobiles, he can grow them and watch them wage tiny wars for funsies. As an added bonus, they'll worship him and carve his face into the side of their little castles. And while Simon is definitely into being worshipped as a god, because of course he is, he's concerned with how lame and puny the Sand Kings are. But Woe assures him that they grow to fit the size of the tank that they're in so he can make them bigger, but that obviously you want to keep them fairly small or they'll shed their exoskeleton and shit will get weird. Spoiler alert, shit's going to get weird. So Simon buys the Sand Kings, getting white, red, black, and orange ones delivered to his house in a much bigger tank so he can better enjoy watching them murder each other. Woe tells him to be patient and wait for them to, like, get used to the tank and start doing their thing. And they build their little castles, and they etch loving renderings of his big, dumb face on the sides of it, and Simon pops a boner over it all, and it's pretty cool. Except... Except... <laughs> yeah. Yep. Except that they're not fighting each other. The four different colors are building up their respective castles and getting more advanced and settled in, and Simon, like the shitty, impatient child you just knew he would be the second we fucking met him, is like, but I want them to kill each other now. And he pouts about it until he has an idea. What do you think it might be? You tell him you're only going to feed the winners. Yeah, actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little disturbed by how quickly you jumped on that. How else are you going to pit them against each other? I got food for one team. <laughs> yeah, he starves them. Uh, that would be a great idea that will most likely have absolutely no obviously telegraphed negative consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So Simon starves them for a couple days, and lo and behold, when he finally drops some food in, the Sand Kings go apeshit and murder each other like crazy for it. And Simon's like, gosh, I am so smart. Look at me go. And he rewards the winners of each war with more food. But of course, that's not enough for him. I mean, what's the point of being a rich sadist if you can't show it off to others? It's true. So he throws a big party and invites all his friends, even Woe and Shade, although Woe tells him that Shade doesn't really do parties or go much of anywhere. Hmm. 
So the party's a big hit, and all his friends are also so rich and bored they've become desensitized to the suffering of any kind of creature, and they have a fucking ball watching the starving Sand Kings go at it, and they even bet on them. One of Simon's exes, a woman named Kath, however, finds the whole thing cruel and leaves. I'm sure this will never come up again. Woe, however, takes Simon aside and asks if he's feeding the Sand Kings enough and that they look like malnourished or whatever, and Simon's like, oh, you know, no, because this makes them fight better. And, and Woe's like, dude, like, look, S Sand Kings by their nature are going to war with each other. Like, that's just how they do. You, you don't have to instigate it by starving them. Like, let them develop and they'll fight their own wars that'll be way more, like, complex and interesting. And, and Simon's like, uh, no. Also, fuck you. These are my Sand Kings. Who do you think you are? The person who sold them to me and has specific expertise on what they are and how to care for them? Get out of my house. Hey, they're not the Sand King God. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> Let's just, you know, get moving till we get to the inevitable part where he fucks it up and they try and kill him. Simon has a bunch more parties and starts pitting the Sand Kings against other animals like sci-fi space spiders. And he tells his ex, Kath, about them when he runs into her for no other reason than to be a dick. And so she retaliates by calling, like, the animal-controlled space sci-fi police, something like that, who threaten to confiscate the Sand Kings until he bribes them to leave. To get back at Kath, Simon buys a puppy and feeds it to the Sand Kings and tapes it and sends the footage to Kath. As if the kittens weren't enough, he feeds a live puppy to a swarm of insects to get back at his ex-girlfriend. Like, I can almost hear Martin in my ear going, Isn't that fucked up? Aren't you freaked out by how fucked up that is? You hope he fucked up? What? That Twitch channel would get a lot of subscribers. Oh god, that's true. <laughs> I'm so upset that that's true. Be some subreddits too. Yeah. Watch my Sand Kings eat things. It's, god damn it, you're right. But also, like, like that's more fucked up than this story. Because, you know, when I read it, it's not like, <gasps> it's just like cartoonish levels of sadism. It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie where the violence doesn't even register because it's so over the top that it's kind of goofy. Like, he's literally like a mustache twirling villain feeding innocent animals to things. <sighs> the Sand Kings, like, murdered him yet? No. But he does notice that the etchings of his face on their little castle walls have changed, and now he looks devilish and cruel and evil. And he's very mad about that. You lived long enough to become the villain. <laughs> or you were just literally the villain from the outset of the story. <laughs> uh, Simon, like any reasonable adult with misbehaving pets, responds by reaching into the tank and stabbing at one of the maws with a sword. And then Kath shows up, and she's fucking pissed about having to watch a puppy get murdered, and also she has a sledgehammer and is going to free the Sand Kings. And Simon, like any reasonable adult in a dispute with an ex-girlfriend, responds by stabbing her to death with a sword. Yeah, take that. <laughs> yeah. She had a weapon. Uh, a deadly weapon. Uh. Before she dies, though... Kath manages to smash the enclosure open, and now there are Sand Kings fucking everywhere. Simon freaks out and immediately drives away to the next city, because he's a shitty baby, and tries to think of what to do next. He decides to dispose of Kath's body and kill the four moths, since they're just like rolling sentient wads of baloney, and once they're dead, all the mobiles will die with them. Sounds easy, right? Just burn the house down. You'd think, like, just literally light your house on fire. But no, he, he likes his house too much, so he sprays poison and pesticide all over, around and outside his house, and it does kill no off- No limes. No limes. It does kill off a whole bunch of loose sand kings running around, and eventually he finds the white maw down in his wine cellar, along with Kath's body, mobiles swarming around it. I'm sure you could hazard a guess as to what comes next. Tries to kill the maw. Don't work. He gets eaten. No. 
No. So actually, I guess you can't guess. I guess not. He makes a stupid joke about how they, they can't eat her body when it's in one piece by saying something like, Yeah, Kath always was hard to swallow. <laughs> I'm a sociopath. And he chops her up and feeds her to the maw on the white mobiles. There you go. Yes, George Rootin' Rowden Martin, it's so fucked up. Once the Sand Kings have gotten the taste for human flesh, things quickly escalate into a little shop of horrors situation, minus the dancing and singing, which honestly would have made this story way more fun. Hey! <laughs> yeah? What, what, what was Rick Moranis' character's name? Seymour. Seymour! Feed me, Seymour! Feed me, Seymour! As Simon alternates between feeding his friends to the Sand Kings in the wine cellar while trying to kill all the other ones that are scattered around his mansion. And also, just as an aside, part of why Little Shop of Horrors works, apart from the fact that a musical about singing carnivorous plants that is amazing, it's that Seymour starts out as a good dude. He's a little weenie who's just in love with, like, Audrey and wants to help her and stuff, and so we empathize with him and watch him transform into a dude who feeds other dudes to a plant. Simon can't transform into a bastard because he starts off as a bastard, so who gives a shit? So he finds the blacks and the reds outside, and he can't seem to find the orange ones anywhere, and he assumes that, like, the maw died, so all the mobiles died. Anyway. So what were the colors here? White, black, and red, that's it? White, white, black, red, and orange. orange. He can't find the orange ones. He assumes they're dead. I'm sure it's fine. Another fun thing is that now that they're not contained in their tank anymore, the motherfuckers are getting bigger and bigger, and they're almost the size of his fingers. Yuck. The blacks and reds have also teamed up against him, and he can't fight them off just with the pesticide anymore. And he knows he can't contact Wo because he did all the things that she said not to. And he can't call the cops because of all the murder. So he calls in some professional assassins, all like, I have a pest control problem. And they're just like, you could just say we need to kill a guy. Simon's like, no, no, really, like, there are nightmare bugs everywhere in my house. Please come kill them. And while they manage to kill the red and the black maws, a few assassins die. And then when it's time to kill the white one, Simon uh, shoots the main assassin and tosses her into the white cellar. Oh, uh, the white cellar. <laughs> tosses her into the wine cellar, gripped by some kind of weird mania that he can't control, that Martin takes the time to tell us feels, quote, almost sexual. Thanks. Did he bond with the white maw? Yes. Because it turns out the, the white maw is like huge now and that they are like semi-psychic because it's so big and fucked up because of what he did to it and because he's feeding it people, it exerts an influence over him. And so it makes him feel like hungry and terrified all the time. And uh, now the Sand Kings are getting bigger and bigger and he can't escape from his house because they've gotten into his car and eaten the engine. And then they just stop moving. They're just just frozen. And he smushes one. And he realizes that it's just a shell. And so he finally breaks down and calls Woe, who tells him that A, he's a big dumb motherfucker who brought this on himself. B, the maw is, is just so huge and, and mistreated and all the things that I just said about how it's controlling him, like she tells him that. Uh, and C, the mobiles have shed their exoskeletons and are going to be evolving into something very different. Intelligent, bipedal, opposable-thumbed, dude-sized creatures, and they will do so in the image of their god, who in this case is Simon. Who could have possibly seen this coming? Who, I ask. I don't know. <laughs> So Woe says at this point, because he doesn't have the car anymore, like Simon should just fucking run into the desert surrounding his house while she and Shade just like nuke that thing from orbit. Oh, also, Shade is an adult Sand King, which is a shocking twist. That means nothing because we never actually meet him. It's just like, oh yeah, BT dubs. And so they say they'll they'll pick him up in the desert afterwards. Do they wear, do they wear clothes? 
I don't know. This is important for me. We never meet Shade. So their dicks are just hanging out? I don't know. They don't really describe the insect version of the mobiles having dicks. Like, they're bugs. I don't think they got dicks. Uh, so Simon indeed fucks off into the desert and gets hopelessly lost in like five minutes. He wanders aimlessly for hours, fairly certain Woe and Shade have abandoned him. Then, just up ahead, he sees signs of civilization. Crude houses among the hills and what looks like a bunch of kids playing. He runs toward them, yelling for help, only to find that... Dun, dun, dun. They're the orange mobiles, all grown up and people-sized. They grab him by the arms and lead him through the door as he screams. Also, they all have his face. The end. Isn't that fucked up? Aren't you freaked out by how fucked up it is? They were going to party with him. Oh yeah, they were going to party with him so hard. Yeah. So Sam Kings actually has seen a couple adaptations. It's funny that you said he was a Marvel guy because one of them was an entry in DC Comics' uh, sci-fi graphic novel series in 1987. And much more interestingly, in 1995, as the first episode of the 90s revival of the classic Twilight Zone ripoff, The Outer Limits. Uh, it starred Bo Bridges, of all people, as Simon. And I guess, because, like, the original is pretty gory and bad. It's almost completely different. Did they all get Bo Bridges' face? <laughs> I fucking wish, but no. Ah. So, in this version, Simon is a doctor on Earth with a wife and a kid. And he's studying Martian technology for the government. And he steals some Martian eggs from the lab after their funding runs down and keeps them in his barn. And he, he's studying them because he wants to win a Nobel Prize, not because he's a fucker. There are no maws, no bedding, no puppy feeding, although he does end up feeding his former supervisor to the Sand Kings. Eventually, as they get out of control and he's cornered in the basement, he nobly breaks a gas pipe to kill himself and the Sand Kings in an explosion. Except a small colony has survived in the woods. Ah, the outer limits. So yeah, it's a totally different fucking story, which proves my point that just watching a bastard be a bastard is not that interesting. And the episode was nominated for an Emmy, which just, just means I'm right. <laughs> That's what that means. I don't know. People watched that House of Cards for however many seasons. What does that have to... And people still support that bastard. Yeah, that's fucked up. <laughs> oh, that character was a bastard from the beginning. That's true, but I guess that's at least still an ensemble cast. And actually... We got bored, like, two seasons into we House got, of Cards yes, because we, it is just him being a bastard. We, we got bored, but there were people watching that. <laughs> yeah, but this is just one guy. Like, there's no one else for him to even, like, play off of. All right, so you you can ask me now. We, we can get to that part of the show where we do the thing. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. So, Bloodchild and Sand Kings. Yep, Bug Nightmares. Xenomorph or Metroid? <laughs> good try i can't i can't think of other insect things metroid yeah. got things like that Me metroid got things don't it doesn't it i don't know I've, oh. never, I've never played metroid so i don't actually know if Anne picked these two stories because of their similar buggy sort of content she's not dead you know or if she just likes the authors or the two stories themselves and any similarities are just a coincidence i could have asked but i didn't i'm sure she'll tell us later you could have gave her Anne's corner Anne's rebuttal maybe she'll get Anne's rebuttal that said, apart from the fact that I'm almost certainly going to have nightmares about wiggly bug limbs and ovipositors and maws and whatever the f fucking hell, the two stories are interesting to put side by side as sci-fi stories meant to mindfuck you. In my humble opinion, if it's not already obvious, I think Bloodchild is way more successful than Sand Kings at both giving me something unexpected and also freaking my giblets right up. 
It's not the thought of the little sand kings devouring a whole person like a million tiny piranhas and hiding potentially anywhere in your house is not like an upsetting mental image. It's just that it doesn't carry the same interesting world building or societal implications. Bloodchild, once I was done tossing the book across the room while going ew, 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 left me with, you know, all these kinds of questions like how was this symbiotic relationship formed? How was it, you know, discovered that this was a thing that worked? How does their society maintain it? What did the Tlick world look like before humans showed up? Like, what's the deal with the gun in Gan's house? You know, and the implications behind that. And that's without even trying to unpack all the implicit themes of, like, reversing gender dynamics by having a guy being essentially kind of forced into the position of being pregnant and this parasitic fear and playing with the idea of, like, a baby as a parasite, you know, kind of thing. And also whether or not this extremely complex and emotionally tangled bond between Gan and, and Tagatoy could be seen as, like, a, quote, loving relationship. I mean, my answer to that is like a no, because there's like a whole implicit power imbalance, but whatever, I don't know. My reaction to Sand Kings was a combination of like mild squirming, eye rolling, and impatiently waiting for Simon to get what was coming to him. The only thing I'm left with after that is like, well, that guy sure was a fuck basket. Sand King gonna give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Getcha. Yeah. Like, like I, I just, I don't know why it won, like, all the awards. Like, it's fine, but it's, like, was 1979 just a slow year? Or was it early enough that, like, the whole, isn't this sci-fi rich people ennui sociopathy so fucked up shtick wasn't maybe yet a shtick? I don't know. It does create what feels like a full lived-in world. But one that's still too familiar to be saying something interesting. And if it doesn't have something interesting to say, then it should be at least entertaining, you know? And, and this was kind of, sort of... There are other unconnected sort of short stories that take place in the same universe, and I will say I'll at least be down to read them, just to, like, see if there are some interesting thematic threads that kind of tie them all together or something. Originally, Martin wanted to do a series of short stories where the Woe and Shade store would just appear on different planets, wreaking havoc or whatever the fuck. So, yeah... I was just real mean to George R.R. R. Martin and heavily in favor of Octavia Butler, but I feel like it's important to note that I went into this with just about as little bias and actual knowledge as possible, not really liking or disliking either of them, just purely by not being that familiar with them. So you can't say that I'm being unfair. Bloodchild good, Sand King's bad, I'm sorry George R.R. R. Martin, you're wrong. Got anything you want to throw in? I get both stories seven xenomorphs. Out of... I don't know. Just seven xenomorphs. Seven xenomorphs. <laughs> seven xenomorphs a leaping. Rawr. <laughs> Sexy. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you like the show, please, you know, leave us leave us some reviews, uh, spread the word, tell everyone you know, scream it outside on your front porch into the void so that all may know and listen. Follow us on Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group. You can pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass. Subscribe, download, unsubscribe, delete, resubscribe, download, and keep doing that. Yeah, just do that in a cycle forever. Or you can always just, you know, go to onolitclass.com, which also has links to all of those things. The next episode will be on March 21st. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Hashtag Stugas Army. <laughs>I gotta figure out how my brain works, Meg. Someday. It's a beautiful mind. Sure. Even we'll, more we'll call beautiful it that. than Russell Crowe. <laughs>
I'll give you that. So, I'm Jabbert. I must pay the rent. <laughs> no, that's not that one. No. No, it's not. What's, that's, that's... What's Jabbert saying? I'm going to kill you, you fucking prisoner? I don't know. I don't know, Lame is. He just goes, and I'm Jabbert. Because that's what the internet meme is. There you go. I'm Jabbert. <laughs> yep. 